you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians 3 today is where we're going to begin our study time. But uh, how many, I want you to think through, just this morning, how many decisions have you made already? I mean, a lot, right? I mean, you decided whether to get up and come to church and what to have for breakfast and all these kind of things. I, I was looking up, studies found, I don't know how they study this, but they said an average person in a given day makes 35,000 conscious decisions. 35,000, that, that's a lot. Like that's, you know, if you take away the sleeping time, that's, you know, very quickly you're making all kinds of decisions. You know, you, you start thinking about all the decisions you make. What do I want to eat? Where do I want to go? Which way do I want to go to get there? How fast do I have to walk to get there? Do I have enough room to pass this person on the sidewalk without looking like a jerk? You know, we have all of these thoughts that we think and we make immediate decisions. You know, what do I say to someone? How do I say it? How do I respond if somebody does something to me? Do I say something to this jerk that just cut me off on the sidewalk, right? I mean, we're constantly making these immediate decisions in our life no matter where we're at and what we're doing. I don't care if you're sitting on a couch or trying to decide what to do for TV. Sometimes you're just deciding even do I want to get up off the couch, right? I mean, you have to make all kinds of decisions in our life. One of the physical, tangible, and intentional decisions we make every day is what we're going to wear, right? I mean, like the clothes that we put on, we wake up and we think about the day ahead of us, where it holds, what the weather's like, who we're going to meet with, how much walking do I have to do today, you know, what's clean, what doesn't need ironed. All these decisions go into what we're going to wear, and if we don't think through it enough, and we don't take into consideration the weather, the places that I'll be going. Not wearing the right thing can be disastrous. Uh, I told this story at one point before, but it fits in perfectly with this idea of being not dressed the right way. I remember uh, when I was in middle school, I was invited to a Halloween party at one of my friend's house. And uh, so I began to talk to my mom about this party. I was excited. And uh, we started talking about the costume that I would wear. And my mom had this phenomenal idea as a middle schooler to dress me up as a girl. Right. And so uh, like, I, I don't know why I went along with it. Not sure why I agreed to it. But like she got so excited and she was like putting, you know, she got all this stuff. She did makeup and everything. And so I show up at this party and uh, I, mean, I guess I was looking good. Right. You know, and I go and I knock on the door. And as the door opens, I see a lot of my friends and family and our, our uh, friends and their parents and stuff like that. And I realized very quickly while this was a Halloween party, it was not a costume party and uh, so I had just assumed that if it was a Halloween party it was a costume I was the only one there uh, dressed up literally uh, with a dress on so uh, if you don't prepare and you dress the right the results can be disastrous you can end up soaked in the rain you can be underdressed for a meeting too hot in the summer too cold in the winter the, the amount of financial and emotional investment that sometimes goes into your wardrobe is overwhelming. The fashion industry is a $12 billion industry in just the U.S. The average person spends about $2,000 a year on their clothes. And believe it or not, it's also a psychological thing. You can get a degree now in what's called fashion psychology. I'm not joking. They're really jobs. You can go in and search for jobs and become a fashion psychologist. I mean, what we wear is important. And today, you're like, what are we doing? Like, I'm not going to spend the rest of my time talking about the fashion industry. That's not where we're going. But what I, what I do want to talk about 
is this passage of scripture that literally God lays out how we dress ourselves spiritually every day. I wanted you to realize how much thought and how much intent and how much investment we put into what we wear physically. And God says you should put at least that much, if not more, in how you dress yourself spiritually for the day. It's not just part of our day. How we dress ourselves spiritually will literally become the driving force for every day of our life. And God, in his amazing goodness and graciousness, literally sets out this wardrobe for us. Like, I don't know if your mom did that for you as a child sometimes. Like, you're going to wear this today. We're going here. You're going to wear that. I remember late middle school, there were a couple things I really wanted. One was, you're going to think I'm really weird, some guest overalls. Like, I just want, like, those were, they were in, man. Like, they were, they, like, no, they weren't. They weren't. <laughs> For me, though, I thought they were. And if you know me long, you know I love to wear Converse. I didn't actually wear my Converse today, but I also wanted some yellow high-top Converse. And I got both of these, and I decided to wear both of these on one day. And I remember the next morning, my mom, as she's getting me up, she's like, Honey, can, can I set out your clothes for you today? Because she realized what I had on the previous day did not look good. I think I only wore those overalls once. And like Chris said, I realized they were not in at that point. But God does the same thing for us. He lays out before us what we should wear every day when it comes to our spiritual life. And so we're going to see this in Colossians 3, and we're going to start in verse 5. And he says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Before we talk about what to wear, what he says right here is he's got to realize you're living in a new environment. You're experiencing a new environment. There's something different about you. If you're a follower of Christ, you're in a new environment. When I look back over my life, I, I've dressed in different ways at different times, dependent on what environment I'm in. In high school, what was you know in, I didn't own a pair of these. I, my overalls were bad enough. But what was in was like parachute pants, members-only jackets. You know, that, that was what you wore. And Coca-Cola T-shirts. Like, anybody remember those things? They were horrible, right? I mean, but that's what, in, in college, it was flannel, acid, acid wash jeans, and Birkenstocks. I mean, that's what we wore in college. Whatever environment you were in, you, whatever job you happen to be, you wear, you dress for the job. And Paul is saying here in this passage to the church in Colossae and to us today, as a follower of Christ, you have to put some things away and you have to put on some new things. And he was teaching them just like he's teaching us that we are in a completely different environment. For that church, here's what they were being taught. And it's often taught to us today. When you become a follower of Christ, it's just an accessory in your life. You know, it's a nice scarf or a nice piece of jewelry. It's not a full wardrobe change. It's just something new in addition to who you are. That's what was being taught at this church. And Paul came back and he said, let me be very clear that following Christ, when you follow Christ, is not adding something to your wardrobe. It's getting a whole new wardrobe. 
It's getting a makeover from top to bottom spiritually, where we become new creations. And so in the next few verses, we're going to see that Paul lays out first five things that we should take off, things that should completely change our wardrobe, not just add an accessory, not just make a minor change. You ever had one of those moments, maybe as a husband where your wife, you walk in and your wife says, do you notice anything different about me, honey? And you're like frozen, right? You're like, uh, start looking at the hair, like, oh, you know, what did you do different? Trying to figure it out. And of course, whatever you say is not the right thing. And, uh, and so you, this is not what God's talking about. This is where you walk in and you see somebody and it's like that big reveal on what not to wear or anything where there's been a complete change and there's something completely different about you. And it starts with removing certain things. So let's look at verse 8, and this is where he starts to lay those out. So he says, but now you must put these all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And so what we're going to look at is these five things that he lists here and start to see these spiritual practices that we need to remove from our hearts and souls and minds. So let's look at these very quickly. The first one is anger. Anger. He says, this is one thing you need to get rid of. Now, you may say, you know, don't I have a right to be angry sometimes? Somebody does something unjust to me or to my friends or to a people group or those that I love. You know, if somebody's being taken advantage of, can't I be angry? Certainly, there's righteous anger. Jesus showed that in Scripture. There was times that he was righteously anger, angry at people. But this is not the type of anger that Paul is talking about, that righteous anger. Instead, Paul is talking about here a kind of anger related to pettiness and pride. And the way it's best described is this. He says, take off anger, which means basically translated when you become easily agitated. Easily agitated. When somebody does something and you're just like, man. You just ruined your day. Like one thing sets your day off. You wake up looking for trouble. You think everybody's out to get you. And he's saying, stop doing that. Don't let these things stick to you. And it's the idea, I've heard it referred to this way, is learn to be Teflon instead of Velcro. Like let things slide off of you very easily versus letting things stick to you and hold on to you and impact you. Because... Here's what I want you to understand. Someone who is easily agitated is easily manipulated. If I know what bothers you, I can manipulate you by using that to fuel your anger and causing you to do things. So he's saying set that aside. Not the righteous anger, but just that anger that gets you frustrated through the day because somebody didn't do something for you, somebody said something the wrong way, or somebody didn't say something, whatever it is. Don't become easily agitated. The second thing he says to put off is wrath. Wrath. Now, what, what is wrath? That sounds like a horrible word. Like, my, most of us in here would probably be like, I'm not a wrathful person. I'm not like, you know, that's not a quality that people would, you know, list in my top five or ten. But sometimes we are that because here's what that means. This is literally the desire for revenge, to extract revenge or ret- retribution upon someone that you have perceived that has done something wrong to you. Somebody that does something wrong to you in person or to someone you love or to somebody that something that you care about. And here's the deal. Wrath is most oftenly displayed not in equal amounts, but in growing, growing amounts. So if somebody does something to me, what happens? I do something back to them, but just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. 
And so wrath creates this unbreakable cycle of destruction and division. You hurt me, I'll hurt you worse. And once I hurt you worse, what are you going to be? You're going to hurt me worse. And it's just this unbreakable cycle. And we can see this play out personally and culturally. Think about it. How often do we see a group that has felt marginalized by the powerful begin to marginalize those that hurt them as soon as they gain power? Right? I mean, we've seen this historically all throughout history. You hurt me when I get in a chance to hurt you, I'm going to hurt you as well. Wrath is a tool that is only used for destruction. And I want you to hear this. Most often, it doesn't just destroy the object of the wrath, but it destroys the person who is enabling the wrath as well. When I express wrath to someone, when I try to destroy their life, many times it backfires on me and destroys my life as well. The third thing he says to take off here is malice. Malice. Now, malice is best described here as a desire and hope for evil to befall other people. Is that I really want this to happen. This is different from wrath and revenge because those are often birthed out of wrong done to me. Malice is just this basic desire for a person or a group of people to experience evil, difficulty, and failure. Like, I just want bad for these people or this person. For some reason, I disagree with them. We, have, we don't have an agreement on things, and I just want bad for them because you don't agree with them you just don't like them. Malice also involves the idea of intent. It's not that you just want bad things to happen to them, but you actually work to make it happen. You're trying to cause ill to come into their life. And, and here's what happens. When we do this, we stop moving forward in our lives because our whole focus is on trying to keep others from moving forward and pushing them backwards. So we stop doing things that move us ahead and because all we're focused on is keeping others from getting ahead of us. That's what malice is. The other one is slander. Says Paul that we should remove slander. And slander is when we use our words to literally destroy the character of someone else. When we use the power of our words to tear down and destroy someone's character. Slander, while it may begin in a basis of a true statement, usually moves quickly to exaggerating the negative and minimizing the positive. It has one single goal, to diminish the reputation of someone in the eyes of the other. It loves to destroy. That's what slander does. It loves to destroy. Slander doesn't mean, though, removing slander, I want to be clear, doesn't mean that we don't get to have the right to call people out on decisions or statements that they have made that are wrong or hurtful or incorrect. That's not slander. That's speaking truth. But when that doesn't give, but it also doesn't give us the right to literally assassinate someone's character through lies, deceptive speech, exaggeration, assumption, and conjecture. Just because we disagree with them doesn't mean we have a right to slander them. More often than not, slander actually damages the character of the one spewing it more so than the one that it's aimed at. So slander. The last one is this. Obscene speech, obscenity. Now that word, Paul isn't referring to like just specific words that come out of your mouth, like the old George Carlin, the seven words you can't say on TV. He's like not talking about those, just don't use these seven words. He's talking about here is the elevation of lewdness through our talk. 
the elevation. He's talking about the use of language to elevate the, the lewd, the obscene, the indecent, the vile, and the wicked. Paul is saying here, don't use your words to give power and attention to things that are contrary to what you say you believe. Just don't do it. Don't let something come out of your mouth that elevates something that you say you don't believe in anymore. Obscenity, lewdness, indecency. Why is this important? Because words give life and give traction to ideas. And this is just about refraining from telling dirty jokes or using coarse language. This is about using your words instead to elevate truth instead of evil. Now think about these things that we just mentioned, right? You got anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscenity. I mean, I think all of us, when we hear them in those terms, those are things we would love to set aside. But there, there's an old Greek word that talks about where these happen sometimes in our life, and it's called Facebook. Right? I mean, if, you, if you've been on Facebook lately, I see all of these things. Every, I wish I had a filter that was like, please remove the malice. Please remove the wrath. Please remove the obscene speech. I would enjoy getting on Facebook more if that was the case. But we, don't we see this? You, you can say, hey, this isn't me or this isn't our culture, but it is. It is. And this is why it's so important that Paul says, set these aside. And what he says next in verse 9 and 10, help us to begin to understand how to do this. Look in verse 9, it says this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. What Paul is saying here is that you and I start How do we keep these things away? By being accountable to each other. Don't lie to each other. You see this in somebody's life? Call it out. You see somebody being wrathful with their actions, practicing malice or slander, or being angry, being easily agitated? Call it out. doesn't give you the right to judge. He's not saying be judgmental of people, but he's saying stand with people, encourage them, strengthen them, challenge one another to take off these old vestiges of evil and step into righteousness instead. We do this together. This doesn't just happen in a vacuum. I don't wake up one day and just can do all this by myself. We do this together. Now, the amazing thing that I love about Paul, thankfully, that he doesn't just tell us what to take off. He doesn't leave us naked, right? He now tells us what to put on instead. This is where he starts laying out the clothes for us. So look in verses 12 and 14, and he lists six things here. He said, but then... Put on then as God's chosen chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Look down to verse 14. And he said, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So let's look at these right quick. What is, should we put on? One is compassion. Compassion. Compassion isn't just feeling bad for someone. It means that you are moved to do something about it. And when Paul tells us to put on compassion, he's literally telling us to become a source of mercy for other people. That mercy begins to flow out of our life. And and like these are little labels that we should be wearing. When people see us and interact with us, they should see mercy because of our compassionate heart that we have put on. Mercy is when we're willing to intervene in someone's life, not because they deserve it, but most oftentimes because they don't deserve it. 
Mercy is making so- is not making someone earn your compassion. It is showing compassion with no thought of repayment, thanks, or honor. No strings attached. Mercy. That's what compassion leads us to, is to become a source of mercy. The second thing he says to put on here is kindness. Put on kindness. Kindness isn't just being nice to people. It's not just being accommodating to people. And not even to those that maybe are nice to you. Kindness is instead the willingness to be a source of forgiveness. A source of forgiveness. Kindness and forgiveness don't really take on their full meaning until they have to be expressed to those that have hurt you deeply. It's easier for me to forgive somebody that I love and has just messed up a little bit versus somebody that I view as my enemy that has shown me wrath, malice, and anger. Right? But that's kindness and mercy. It's our forgiveness. When kindness begins to show in our life, it really shows when we show it to those that it's difficult to express it to. Kindness is one of the most powerful tools we have in our lives. Using kindness and showing forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools you have to impact other people's lives. The third thing he says to put on there is humility. And humility is not thinking bad about yourself, but instead it's the ability to not think higher of yourself than other people. So humility is not, oh, I'm so bad, I'm not good. And it's not certainly a false humility, but it's the willingness and the ability to say, you know what, I'm just here with everybody else. I don't elevate myself, put myself on a platform. We're, we're equals in God's eyes. And this is where humility becomes a source of respect, a source of respect that we can show to other people. Respect is allowing others to have a different perspective than you without diminishing who they are as a person. So just because somebody disagrees or has a different perspective does not mean that we have to lose respect for them. Respect is the ability to recognize that you don't know everything. And even those that you think are not as smart as you, they may know something that you don't know. They have a perspective on life that you've never experienced. Respect finds value in all people instead of finding fault in them. Respect finds value instead of fault. The next thing he says to put on is meekness. Meekness. Now, the word meekness sounds so much like weakness that we often get the two confused, right? Like meekness, you just think of this little mousy person and, you know, they say, you say something like, what, what'd you say? They have to speak up two or three times. That's not at all what meekness is. The word meekness literally is best described and translated as power under control. It is extremely powerful, but pointed in the right direction and used for the right purposes. And here's what meekness helps us become. It becomes a source of honor for others as well. Meekness doesn't have to let everyone know that you are right or when they're, or that you're the one in charge. Instead, meekness dispenses honor to others in such a way that all experience the fruits of success are the cushions of defeat. Honor begets loyalty. And loyalty bears the fruit of sustainability and durability in our relationships. You you want relationships that last. You want relationships that are going to be meaningful for the long term. Show meekness. Be a source of honor. The next thing he tells us to put on is patience. Patience. Now, patience isn't just waiting, right? I mean, we 
here the patient's just, you know, it means I've got to wait around, I guess. I, I just not do anything. It's not just enduring and hoping that someday something good will happen. That's not patience. Patience instead is learning to be a source of faithfulness. Faithfulness is acting on the things that you know you should be doing, no matter if the results have been demonstrated yet or not. Think, think about the person that we call a waiter, right? Do, do they receive their tip at the beginning of the meal? No, they, they do their job. They, they do what they know they're supposed to do. And at the end, because of their faithfulness, the reward comes. Their faithfulness begot the reward in their life. And that's what God says, that as we patiently move forward, it's not that we are going to know every answer. We're not going to see every reward immediately. But as we continually follow what we know to do, patience plays out in our life. I want you to understand this. We've heard this a lot. Patience is not a virtue. Patience is a verb. It's something that we actually do. As we are being patient, we are doing the things that we've been told to do and that we know are right. Patience is action. It's not just waiting. The last thing in verse 14 that he tells us is to put on love. And he says this above all things. Love is the most important spiritual garment that we can put on. Because without love, I want you to see this. Everything else will lose its luster in life. Compassion will fade. Kindness will wane. Humility will erode. Meekness will falter. And patience will give up without love. That's why he says, above all else, put on love. And love just isn't having warm feelings toward other people. Instead, it is when we become a source of righteousness, that righteousness through the power of God begins to play out in our life. Love and righteousness go hand in hand. How can I love something if I don't want the best for it? How can I say I love something if I don't do everything in my power to protect it from harm? Love isn't saying everything is right. Love is allowing what is right to bring help, healing, and hope for everyone. Catch that. Love isn't saying everything is all right. Love is allowing what is right to bring hope, healing, and help for everyone. You see, what we like to do sometimes in love is bend what is right, try to bend what is right to fit our perceptions and our preferences. And what love actually does is brings us to the right way of living. Scripture says that what it, it takes our crooked ways and our crooked hearts and makes them straight. That's what love does. So we have all these things to put on. But how do we do it? I mean, even if God sets all this out for us and we have accountability, how do we put on, how do we keep from putting on these old clothes that are so comfortable and feel so good? Right? I love when I get home in the, in the evenings or after church, like I have a, my favorite pair of sweatpants and a T-shirt. Like I've had them for a long time. They're like ratty and nasty, right? But they're comfortable. It's what I feel very comfortable in. But if I wore those all the time, that would certainly be inappropriate to wear to certain places. And so how do we not just fall back into what's comfortable, but put on what God desires for us to dress for spiritual success? And I love that Paul doesn't leave us without that answer in verses 15 through 17 and give us this. And I want you to hear certain things as we close our reading these verses. Verse 15 to 17 said this. How do you do this? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let God's peace bubble up in your heart 
to which indeed you are called in one body, and then be thankful. Let peace bubble up in your heart. Have an attitude of thankfulness. And then let the word of Christ grow richly in you by teaching and admonishing one another. Let truth, God's word, come into your life. In all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. And I love verse 17. So that whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let peace motivate you. Let thankfulness guide you. Let his word speak wisdom into you and respond with thankfulness by willing to do whatever you do in the name of Christ. So my question for you today as we close is this. What are you wearing? Who are you wearing today? Right? What, what are you wearing? What, what spiritual clothes have you intentionally put on today? Because if we don't approach it with intention, do you know what we're going to put on? What's comfortable? Malice, anger, wrath, sanity. We'll put those on because they're what we're most comfortable in. Do you need to change clothes today spiritually? Do you need to instead let love be the initial garment that you put on? And then let meekness, kindness, and all these others flow through you. So today, would you invite God's peace into your heart? Would you have a spirit of thankfulness? Would you allow his word to fill your mind? Would you listen to the wisdom of others? Would you praise him with your mouth and give thanksgiving? And would you walk as he would walk, dressed as he would be dressed today? Let's pray together.